Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series. I'm Cliff Smith, the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum. And today my guest is Professor Paul Miller. He's a professor of international affairs at Georgetown. Um, he's also a contributing editor to Providence, a journal of Christianity and foreign policy, and a visiting professor at AEI. Um, he served as director for Afghanistan on the National Security Council staff from 2007 and to 2009 under both George W. Bush and Obama. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about America's engagement in the Middle East, um, specifically from a just war perspective and the idea of a just peace as well. Um, the Middle East is rarely a place that lacks for conflict um, and America is often criticized for acting unjustly in the region, be it for its use of force um, or the behavior of states it chooses to work with. Um, what it means to act justly in the region is not an easy question. America's strategy in the world inevitably forces policymakers to make hard choices, work with less than perfect actors and allies, and settle for less than optimal outcomes. But what are the moral and ethical guardrails that we can use to guide our decisions? How can we think about uh, American um, engagement in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians and its other, other enemies? These are the kinds of questions we're hoping to explore today. Um, Professor Miller is the author of the book, Just War and Ordered Liberty, which was put out last year by Cambridge University Press. Uh, my book, which full disclosure, I'm about a third of the way through, but haven't quite yet finished. Um, he's also the, um, the author of countless um, articles about foreign policy, national security, and just war. So thank you, Professor Miller, for being with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for um, inviting me to, to talk with you. I appreciate it. To start things off, I know you have some thoughts about what justice looks like in the Middle East. And so perhaps you can start out by just giving a little bit of a talk, maybe an overview on what you think um, about America's engagement in the Middle East and how you think we should think about it in terms of what is just and right. Yeah, thanks, Cliff. Um, I approached this question by uh, with, with my background in just war kind of hovering in the background. Um, just war is a way of thinking about the use of lethal force but I like to extend it to think about just grand strategy. If you think about the just war tradition, it talks about the need to have just cause and right authority and, and so forth. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the cause animating our foreign policy, not just the use of force? I think it's important that uh, sort of a touchstone idea here is that power is not self-justifying. There's quite a lot of foreign policy commentary that treats power as self-justifying, and they recommend courses of action that enhance American power, advance American power, balance against other powers, or use American power without really digging into the question of what our power is for. I think it's actually really important to ask that question. Um, if foreign policy is aimed at nothing more than enhancing our own national power, I think that's insufficient, and we need to have thought through that prior question. Um, there has to be a prior moral purpose guiding the use or meaning of our power. There has to be a prior moral purpose behind it. And I think the prior moral purpose is and should be ordered liberty at home and abroad, defending and preserving ordered liberty at home and abroad. With that as our poll star, it helps guide some of the tricky decisions we have to make in the Middle East. It's not a region known for ordered liberty, but it is a region where there's quite a lot of threats to ordered liberty. And so having this as our poll star, our guiding light, can help us make some of those decisions and prioritize our action. Yeah, so um, you spent time um, thinking about um, how to prioritize our actions and how to formulate grand strategy 
um, both in general and specifically as a practitioner as well as a professor. Um, you spent two years, I believe, working on the National Security Council with regards to Afghanistan. Um, I also know that you have been critical of both the Trump and Biden administration in the run-up to the debacle that I would argue started with the Doha agreement with the Taliban in early 2020 and was signed by the Trump administration and ended with all the chaos we saw in Afghanistan in 2021 in August under President Biden. Um, yet very few, um, if any, would argue that we were unjust in going after the perpetrators of 9-11 um, and those that harbored them. Even if it's kind of hard to look at the end result of what happened in Afghanistan and see much justice or see a satisfactory outcome. Um, so I was just, the question I guess I would ask next is, um, was our policy there just? Um, and if it is just, um, or if parts of it are just, like where did it go wrong? And what was yeah. right about it? Uh, well, where did it go wrong? How, how long do you have? <laughs> well, we got um, a few minutes, maybe not right. a, a whole long time, but a while. Uh, you're right that I think it's obvious that it was just and appropriate for us to intervene in Afghanistan for our own self-defense uh, and to bring to justice Al-Qaeda and, and those who shielded them. Uh, but this is a great case study because it, it forces us to ask not just is it just to go in, but rather what does justice require us to do once we're there? And I think that um, both justice and prudent grand strategy required us uh, to win the war as a form of our own self-defense. It also required us to stay and provide reconstruction and stabilization assistance as a form of use postbellum, uh, justice after war, but also as a, as a matter of just providing stability so that we could exit responsibly. And also it was a way of fulfilling our promises to the Afghans. Um, we signed several agreements with them, strategic partnership agreements, bilateral security agreement, expressly promising to stand by them and help defend their new democracy and their prosperity. And it, would, it, was, it was morally obligatory for us to stand by that other, you know, and stand by our own word. And so that's why I think it was appropriate for us to stay and try to build something that could hold up a basic public order. Um, and it was wrong for us to leave, both unjust and strategically counterproductive. Where did it go wrong? All over the place. I think that I think that President Bush underinvested in peace building, and prioritized the counterterrorism mission uh, at the expense of the stabilization mission. And ideally, those should have synergized and gone together. But oftentimes, we pursued the counterterrorism at the expense of the long-term stabilization. President Obama did something similar with his uh, his timetable for withdrawal. And then, of course, the Doha Agreement and Biden's withdrawal. They were all consistently um, poor strategic decisions that led to an unjust outcome of the war. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad turn of events. And the, in my view, we're going to be paying for that for quite some time, both in yeah. a, a strategic, str str hey, excuse me, I'm uh, suffering from George W. Bush syndrome here, I guess, uh, <laughs> both from our strategy and uh, in terms of what it costs us morally. But um, in different ways, there have obviously been other conflicts in the Middle East um, that have occupied um, attention of Americans that um, America has been directly involved in. Obviously, Iraq, um, we were involved in a big way for a number of years and in some ways still are. And to a lesser degree, uh, the um, civil war in Syria, which we have um, been there in different ways and different capacities um, to, um, to try to bring a more just order 
I, I was wonder just sort of as a big picture thing, how do you think about these conflicts? Um, I mean, Iraq, obviously, we were directly involved in. You could argue, I think well, it's quite this simple, but you could argue we, you know, started that conflict or at least restarted it, um, you know, on one level. Um, Syria is a little bit different, but we were certainly involved. Um, how is our use of force justified? Um, and uh, how would you think about these issues going forward and backward for that matter? Yeah, so so it sounds like you're asking me to do a sort of tour of the horizon of all the Middle East conflicts and what we should That's we a good do? way of putting yeah. it. Sure. <laughs> the ones America's involved in anyway. Yeah, so I'll reiterate, I think our first priority is, uh, you know, it, our ordinal value here is ordered liberty. And our first priority is defending ordered liberty at home from any external threats. And just from that right there, I think you can say our top priority is combating ISIS and Iran, right? I think those are clear threats to ordered liberty at home. They threaten America. Um, and uh, I think it is acceptable when necessary to ally with other autocracies to fight against the greater threat, mm -hmm. which is why it makes sense to have some relationship with Saudi Arabia, with UAE, the other Gulf states, because they share a common threat, uh, they share a common enmity with us against ISIS and Iran. I do want to say we should always reevaluate those relationships because our partnership can validate or legitimize their autocratic government in unhelpful ways. And if our goal here is ordered liberty, Saudi Arabia is no friend of ordered liberty. Like, let's be blunt about that. Um, let's be clear about that. So that kind of relationship, we should reevaluate it year by year. I actually think that maybe our relationship with the Saudis is less important now than it has been for 40 years. Uh, and so maybe there's room for a bit more of a distance, but you know your, your mileage may vary. Um, so that's kind of how I think about our immediate threats, ISIS and Iran. Um, and that is why it's probably good for us to be involved at some level in Iraq and in Syria. But we're not obligated to go all in. I'm not saying that because there's a threat, we have to reinvade with 100,000 troops. I think it's appropriate to calibrate our level or our intensity of effort with the importance of the region as a whole. And the Middle East is a tertiary region. Uh, I think compared to Europe, compared to East Asia, those are the primary geopolitical theaters in the world because of the concentration of wealth, power, and danger there. The war in Ukraine has an escalatory potential that doesn't exist in Syria. Right? So, let, so you know, let's calibrate our level of involvement with the degree of importance and the degree of danger here. Um, so that's kind of thoughts on Iraq, Syria, Saudi. Let me point out an opportunity, right? We should also be looking out for opportunities to invest in ordered liberty abroad, which means defending Israel, right? Israel is just about the only stable democracy between Gibraltar and, and, and the Khyber Pass. Um, a few, Tunisia for a while looked like it was an emerging democracy. And there's some autocracies that are a bit more open than others. Uh, and we should encourage that. But Israel absolutely is a friend of ordered liberty, and we, we ought to defend and support Israel. And I think we've done a great job with that. I think we should have done much more to invest in the Arab Spring and encourage the emerging democracies in Tunisia. Uh, and maybe, you know, I, it's not fair to call Morocco an emerging democracy, but encourage the signs of openness in other countries. Uh, those would have been opportunities that we could have taken advantage of, and I think we didn't do a good job of it. That, um, one thing I should have mentioned earlier, um, I'll ask a couple more questions and then we will get to audience questions. So if anybody in the audience has a question, please type it into the Q&A box and we will get to it in the coming minutes, um, hopefully before the end of the webinar. Um, 
uh, on that, um, I wonder, um, you mentioned Israel. That's one thing I was going to ask you about in any event. Um, you wrote an excellent article in Providence Magazine about the recent Gaza conflict between Israel and the terrorist government of um, Gaza, Hamas. Um, let me quote you, I like this quote. Hamas is a terrorist organization that deliberately murders civilians, says it wants to destroy Israel. On the other hand, Israel has the right to defend itself, full stop. You also say Hamas is wrong no matter what you think of the Palestinians' cause, and that even if you sympathize, sympathize with the Palestinians, you should hate Hamas. Hamas is the greatest enemy of the Palestinians. I was just sort of wondering if you might walk us through how you got there and how you think about the wider sort of Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, yeah. Yeah, so first off, I think that it's entirely um, legitimate for us to still talk about a two-state solution. Uh, the two-state solution has been on the table since 1947, when the United Nations first offered the partition plan. The partition plan, which, by the way, the United States endorsed, which the Jewish Agency for Palestine endorsed, predecessor to the Israeli government. So we're, we're on record as supporting some form of a Palestinian state as far back as then. Uh, and, and of course, George W. Bush reiterated that um, in his administration. Uh, what's the problem? What's holding back a Palestinian state today? It's no longer an Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Israel withdrew from those regions. Um, the primary obstacle, as I understand it, is Hamas, right? The fact that a large part of the Palestinian territories are under the governance of a terrorist organization makes it impossible for the international community to support them. Uh, if you support the Palestinians' cause, you should hate Hamas and everything they're doing to the Palestinians' cause. They've hijacked the Palestinian cause and used it as an excuse for a terrorist campaign. Uh, so there could be a two-state solution if and after uh, you know, terrorism stops. Um, you don't negotiate a two-state solution with a gun to your head. Uh, so that, that's, I guess, how it begins to think through this issue. Understood. Um, you said one other thing that, uh, earlier. You mentioned that you know you um, should be um, engaged in the region. You mentioned Syria and uh, Iraq and you know, our um, de facto alliance with Saudi and UAE. Um, you know, proportional to the um, the threat. And you, you cited you know Asia, um, Eastern Europe, and such as the more prominent theaters of war. Um, I'm curious, given that states like Russia are obviously involved in Syria. They are, China is very open about doing things, not necessarily militarily, but economically and diplomatically to, um, shall we say, gain much greater influence in the Middle East. Um, how, do you, how do you think about how to respond to those kinds of things um, and from an American point of view? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so the Middle East is a cockpit of conflict among the great powers, which in a way elevates its importance beyond what it otherwise would be. Um, and uh, should we push back on every effort by Russia or China to expand their influence in the Middle East? I think the answer is kind of yes, so long as it doesn't lead us to uh, overextend ourselves. Look, Russia, we don't want to be in the business of letting Russia set our foreign policy priorities mm -hmm. as if anywhere they go, we have to go. Anywhere China goes, we have to go. Then we're in a constantly reactive mode, and that's not a way to do a grand strategy. I think when we see Russia in Syria, it's not good. And I don't, I, I hate the fact that Russia and, and Assad have essentially won that war, more or less. 
but if I have to choose between fighting back in Syria and fighting back in Ukraine, I'm going to choose Ukraine, right? And I think that makes sense just as a as a exercise in drawing priorities. Um, if we can push back with all of the other tools at our at our arsenal in ways that don't detract appreciably from our bandwidth to handle the crises in Europe and East Asia, then yes, we absolutely should. All right. Uh, we'll go to some audience questions now. Um, there's two questions. One's from an anonymous attendee. The other is from um, um, Isaac Cohen. Um, they're related. Um, one says, can you address the issues of the dangers for Israel of the JCPOA2 that is ready to be adopted? Another one says, what should be our approach to the danger of Iran securing nuclear weapons? Yeah, I'm not uh, read up on the details of the new JCPOA that's under negotiation right now. I'll say the JCPOA1, uh, deeply flawed, uh, essentially not enforceable. I, I interpreted the JCPOA1 as the formal codification of Iran's nuclear breakout capability. That's just how I read it. It was almost, it, if you want to be really extreme about it, it was the surrender document of the Iraq war, right? We lost the Iraq war. We withdrew essentially handing regional hegemony over to Iran. And what is Iran's fruits of victory? It's JCPOA1 and their nuclear capability after a decent interval. That's a bit of an extreme interpretation, but I think you can get there if you squint hard enough. Um, now, we withdrew from that. President Trump withdrew from that. And I was a, actually of a mixed mind on that. Um, deeply flawed though it was, it at least was a framework, and frameworks can be useful as a place of dialogue. Uh, so, you know, it, there was maybe a small virtue in staying into a deeply flawed deal rather than pulling out. Um, now we're trying to get back into another probably deeply flawed uh, deal. I, so whatever we do, it's it's uh, we're, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, in a sense, because that's the reality with really hard situations like Iran's nuclear ambitions. Um, now the question, what do we do about it? Um, gosh, I wish I knew. I, I recognize that Iran's uh, possessing a nuclear weapon would be an extraordinary threat to the world and to Israel and to the United States. I'm not quite sure we can stop it. I think sometimes we think tankers and scholars and pundits think that there's no problem we can't solve. It's not true. And I'm actually not convinced we're able to stop uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions. I've looked at the military options and I'm not optimistic that they would work permanently. Right? They might delay it for a few years, but in delaying it for a few years would also deepen Iran's resolve to actually get it done. Uh, so there's, a, there's not a lot of good options. I think the obvious answer, if Iran builds a nuclear weapon, is that we announce a, few, a mutual defense treaty with Israel and extend our nuclear umbrella over Israel and simply announce that uh, an act of war on Israel is an act of war on us. That I think is the most logical answer to an Iranian nuclear weapon. I wish I had an answer for how to stop them from getting it, but I, you know, uh, from, your, your guess is as good as mine. For, I'm curious, I'll, I'll add in my question here. From a, from a um, setting aside the, um, you know, the unknown in terms of how well our response to um, an Iranian nuclear pro um, program would be, um, be it militarily, covertly, or otherwise. What do you think is just in, in trying to prevent this um, threat from occurring? In other words, uh, the alleged assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists? <laughs> or or uh, potentially for military strike or yeah. sanctions or the, the many things that have been tried and things that have not yet been tried. To try to to try to squelch this threat before it has completely formed. Here's the best argument I can make in favor of any of those options: that we are, in fact, and have been in a state of cold war, if not quasi war, with Iran since 1979. 
Um, and that state of war has existed through the hostage crisis, through the tanker quasi war. Uh, I think I think we've convincingly put Kobar towers at Iran's feet as well. Um, and the Iraq war was in some part a proxy war against Iran, against Iranian-backed Shia militias. So we've been fighting against Iran in various forms for 40 years. And if that's the case, then uh, the kind of options you suggested could fit within that framework. Mm -hmm. Now, here's my argument against that. Nothing in this quasi-war that we've been fighting has uh, is leading towards ordered liberty. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I don't see many options to achieve ordered liberty through this kind of quasi-war. So I'm a little cautious about endorsing any and all options to push back on Iran. Um, because again, let's remember, power is not self-justifying. Just because we can do something to hurt Iran doesn't make it the right thing to do. And I, if you get in that framework where, where you say anything is justified because it's Iran, you're getting pretty close to kind of a, almost a holy war doctrine where you're fighting against the enemy because of who they are, not what they do. Um, on another topic here, um, Mayor Herzl Melmed asks, how do you um, look at the Obama chemical weapon red line in Syria and then ignoring that red line? And I note, I think President Biden almost reiterated that um, yesterday. He said the same thing with regard to Russia using chemical weapons in Ukraine, that it would demand some kind of response. Uh, at the time, I wrote, I wrote this 10 years ago, and I'll say it again, I think that a red line based on the kind of weapon you use is morally arbitrary and, and utterly meaningless. Uh, and he, Obama should not have drawn that red line. And then it was diplomatically stupid to not enforce it. Uh, look, the uh, Rwandan genocide was carried out with machetes. Was it somehow more morally acceptable than a genocide carried out with chemical weapons or nuclear weapons? Of course not. The weapons don't have a moral quality inherent to them. It's all about what they're used for and the, the moral purpose behind their use. So uh, killing people uh, or Bashar al-Assad killing his people, massacring civilians is wrong whether you do it with chemical weapons or whether you do it with bombs, bullets, or machetes. And the same is true in Ukraine. Uh, Putin's invasion is wrong regardless of the weapon he uses for it. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we think about our response to it I'm hearing a lot of people say that we ought to respond to, if Russia uses chemical or nuclear weapons, that we need to respond in kind or we need to intervene. I actually don't think that's true. Our decision to intervene or not should be based on our strategic considerations and our, and our values, not on this or that weapon system being used. Yeah. Um, we have several questions that all sort of um, piece together um, and they're roughly on the same topic. That is, you know, we've talked about a concept of ordered liberty with regard to a just war. Um, however, there's, a, when you, especially in the Middle East, where you have not only autocracies, but also um, sort of budding theocracies. And um, I, how do you view a just order when um, the likely outcomes of any peace results in some form of you know, radical Islamic theocracy or, or some form of autocracy? Um, and how do you justify what a, or look at what a ordered liberty outcome or some version of it yeah. might look like? Um, so I think of uh, ordered liberty as a spectrum, not a binary. So there's, you know, better versions of it in the form of uh, liberal democracy. I, I acknowledge that there are some forms of um, maybe constitutional monarchy that uh, get, you know, they're far along that spectrum, but still have some 
features of autocracy that I wouldn't vote for. Um, and so let's keep that in mind that there's there's a gradation of outcomes here. After the Gulf War, we put the Al-Sabaab family back on the throne in Kuwait and simply allowed them to continue on with their monarchical absolutism as before. I think that was a mistake. I think that we could have and should have pushed for democratic reforms there. But I also think it wasn't the worst thing in the world that we liberated the Kuwaiti people and uh, their government returned to power. That was that was suboptimal, but but uh, understandable, right? I would have pushed for more democracy there. Um, is there any conflict between ordered liberty and Islam? The millions of Afghans, Iraqis, and Tunisians who voted in their elections over the past two decades would say no, and I'm inclined to defer to their answer. Uh, they seem to believe that uh, some form or version of democracy uh, and civil rights can work with some form of Islam. And I think that's yeah, not being a Muslim, I can't give you a theological answer, but I observe empirically, it seems to have worked at sometimes in some places in some Muslim countries. So let's go with that. Let's go with that answer and encourage that form of a kind of an Islamic Republic, if you will. There are, look, there's features that are in greater tension, uh, women's rights and religious freedom. It's much harder to push for that in an Islamic country. Let's be frank about that. But by and large, voting, representation, majoritarian rule, checks and balances, there's nothing anti-Islamic about those. Um, here's a question from Ken Miller, which is um, a little bit more niche, but I think would be interesting. Um, he says, um, does military leadership and government administration have a moral obligation to ensure that soldiers fighting in conflicts such as Iraq, Afghanistan, um, are not being physical and mental mental casualties of the conflict. I think he's kind of trying to make the point that you know when we see things that are not going well, like Afghanistan, um, you know, what is how do you weigh the commitment to our troops versus um, a commitment to um, you know the people of Afghanistan or other places that Americans chose to get involved? Um, if I understand the question correctly, uh, I would say that. Um, of course, the government has a responsibility to its own citizens, including its own soldiers, uh, to protect their lives and care for their well-being, to promote the common welfare, right, the general welfare. Uh, but that the military is an instrument for achieving national interests, and particularly in our case, it's an all-volunteer military. And so uh, it, is, it is expected in wartime that you're going to subordinate the human element of the military to the mission. And that's what it means to go to war, right? You are using humans instrumentally to achieve a national objective. Uh, that's usually wrong to treat humans instrumentally, but war is the case in which it's justified because of the overriding need to protect and defend uh, your country or to protect and defend order, liberty, and justice. So I think that's the answer, if I'm understanding the question correctly. If there's one more element there, it's do we value our own citizens' lives above the lives of Dear. Um, about true. Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Miller, we lost you for about 30 seconds there. Um, could you? Well, uh, what I said was brilliant, so just trust me. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, anyhow, um, we have, we're running out of time. I will ask one question um, of myself that I think is uh, um, interesting. Um, you mentioned um, 
Assad and to Russia um, more or less winning that war. And um, I know something that's been very controversial I've heard from several people recently is um, Assad recently visited UAE, I believe. And uh, there is a, there is a um, sort of a push among some in the region to sort of normalize Assad again. Um, given that they have won that war, how do you look at that from sort of a, uh, you know, just peace point of view? Um, I, I, I don't think that, I'm just going to talk off the cuff because I haven't thought through this. My gut is, even if they've won the war, it's still a barbaric regime that has a lot to answer for. And there's really nothing to be gained by normalizing relationships with them at this point. Not that I can see. Um, of course, we're concerned about a resurgence of ISIS, but we have contingencies in place for that. So tell me why we would bother to normalize relationship with them. What do they have to bring to the table? I don't think they've got anything. And so considering the character of the regime, I'm happy to keep them isolated. But again, that's a pretty off the cuff answer. Understand. Um, we are just about out of time, folks, but thank you very much for uh, for talking with us today, Dr. Miller. Appreciate your insights and uh, um, yeah, thank you for everyone else for participating. Um, we should have this online shortly if you, any of your friends or relatives or anybody else wants to watch it. Um, and please tune in next week for more webinars with uh, some of our great guests. Thank you very much. Thank you.